0: good morning guys, my name is Josh McEwen. We got a ton going on this week. First up is Senior Breakfast happening Wednesday morning, and then Thursday we have Mom to Mom happening in the morning and the evening. This week is also your last week to sign up for the men's retreat or the women's conference. So make sure you guys jump online and sign up there. If you have any questions on our events or things coming up, you can always call the church or check out our website. In addition, in the last few weeks, Student Ministries had the opportunity to do an amazing service trip where we went around Slow County serving over 20 projects of helping people in need, working with different nonprofits, and it was an amazing retreat where we took 30 students to experience uh, what service is like and actually glorify God through serving. We have a video that we'd love for you guys to. check out before we go into the service. So check it out right here. Hi, my name is Pete and what I learned this weekend at Slow Serve is that to serve God you don't just have to like do yard work, but you can also just make relationships with people and connect with them and that it's not all about labor, but it's also about just having fun. Hi, my name is Amy Jones and at Slow Serve this week I learned about Connie Snyder. She told me about how she moved to Tascadero, she told me about her life and the complications that came with it. And I brought her joy, and I was glad to see that. And I was glad, I was excited to clean up everything at all the locations I served at. And I was excited to bring everybody joy that I served. Hi, my name is Adam Romet, and I'm here at Slow Serve. And I learned a lot of things on this trip. I pretty much knew the most, the general part of this trip and why I'm going is to serve people. But as I started doing the work, I met way more people than I assumed I would, and learned a lot about the people that I was serving and the peers that were with me at the time and in my team. I'm Ruby, and coming into this, I didn't really know what to expect, but it was really cool and I really liked it, and I got to see a lot of the behind the scenes and help out with that, which is really interesting because most people don't know what goes on behind the scenes and all the hard work. It's really cool, and I want to do it again. I got to learn and see how creative we can be with all of this and how God is the most creative one out of all of us. What I learned about God this weekend was probably that he taught me how to have more of a servant's heart, which is kind of hard for all of us to have because we always want other people to do things for us, but we learn a lot, and I learned a lot by helping other people, and it just kind of brought me joy to see the smile on other people's faces when I helped them. guys, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you guys have an amazing week. Welcome to part two of our teaching through the Beatitudes. That's the first 12 verses in Matthew chapter five. Last week, we asked the questions, uh, who are we? Who or what is God? And three, a question that everybody's seeking to answer, what is the good life? And we said that we want Jesus to define our idea of the good life. And we talked about verses 1 through 6. Today we're going to go through verses 7 through 12 in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read, and I actually want to read the whole passage just for context to see where we were um, because it really is one uh, cohesive piece of thought from Jesus. So we're going to go from Matthew 5 verse 1 and then we'll explain. So, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here's the new verses for this week. Verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, So the fifth blessed statement that we see that we come to right now is blessed are the merciful in verse seven, blessed are the merciful. One aspect of mercy is the idea of having deep compassion that moves you to action. So think of Luke 15 and the father who had compassion on his prodigal son and he ran to him but it's also closely tied to the value of forgiveness. That's usually what mercy looks like in relationship to other people. I heard this story of a third grade girl who had to write an apology note uh, to another girl in her class, she was being a bit of a bully, so the teacher made her write an apology note, and the note read like this. I'm sorry for calling you stupid, and I'm sorry for yelling at you. I did that because I do think you are stupid. You should be sorry for kicking me in the back of the boots. You also should be sorry for saying that you were just playing. I really need an apology from you, and I want it due on Thursday. Got it? If you got it, this will not be a problem. You want to do this the easy way or the hard way? I think you should do the easy way. Sincerely, and she signed her name. I think that girl is the shot caller of her prison gang now, I'm pretty sure, but we can't know for sure. That's one way to think about forgiveness and apologies and mercy, but how do we experience it? What does that look like in our life? Lots of times, we're hesitant to forgive people because it feels like they haven't earned it, like this girl obviously didn't believe her friend did. But that's not forgiveness at all when we think they have to earn it. That's when we might be confusing forgiveness with full reinstatement of previous trust. And that doesn't just happen after you've been wronged. That's totally fair. That's the long, hard work of restitution and reconciliation. If you go to CR, you're familiar with this, that forgiveness is required of us, but reconciliation depends on the willingness of the other party. So forgiveness, that is the one-sided, required by following Jesus decision to let go of the resentment and the anger for the offense. One way they say it in Celebrate Recovery is that it's giving up your right to get even. They don't have to earn it at all. That's why it's called mercy. You may have heard the saying, grace is God giving people what they don't deserve, and mercy is God not giving people what they do deserve. Remember this, when you think about mercy and forgiveness, remember this, forgiveness brings freedom. Freedom for the other party, yeah, for sure, in the sense that they're released from your resentment, but freedom for you in that you are no longer prisoner to the pain that they caused you. So to forgive, to have mercy, that's to escape the self-crippling cycle of nursing a grudge. Sometimes we withhold mercy from people as a way of payback, to sort of punish them with our pain, almost as a way to take control of the hurt that they caused and make it work for us, not against us but nobody was ever punished into reconciliation. And the only prisoner in that case will still be you. You're just as controlled by the pain as you were at the first offense. I heard that forgiveness is like putting the gun down and realizing that you had it pointed at yourself the whole time. Forgiveness brings freedom. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, those who have mercy, those who don't give people what they do deserve, and they do give them what they don't deserve. The sixth blessed be statement is, or blessed statement, is blessed are the pure in heart in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. There are two things that I see Jesus saying. First, Jesus teaches us the meaning of purity, the meaning of purity. So For context, us in our world, I don't think that that phrase surprises us or sounds foreign to us at all. When he says the pure in heart, because we live in an age that values authenticity, at least by name, at least we like to say that we value authenticity. Whether or not we're actually capable of living that out together, I don't really know, but as a culture, I think we like the idea of the term, you know, like being authentic and genuine is like the coolest thing you can be, and being fake is like the worst thing someone can call you. Um, And it's funny, I think usually that's because we don't have a more well thought through reason for not liking somebody, and so we say that they're fake. And it seems like our idea of authenticity is usually suspiciously well-curated, and it all feels kind of like an oxymoron anyways, like trying to be real shouldn't be something that you try for. But anyways, I'm ranting on that. But the term sounds familiar to us, and it should sound attractive to us. Pure in heart. Yes, that's what matters. Pure in heart. Good intentions. But to Jesus' listeners, this probably wasn't as familiar. This would not have scratched the same cultural itch or highlighted the same buzzwords. It just would have made them curious. And perhaps it would have made them a little bit suspicious about what Jesus may have been saying without saying it. So what unwritten subscript might lie between the lines of a phrase like the pure in heart? Because listen, for them, Purity, according to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, this was an objective, measurable, external status. It was outside. So for the previous 400 years, since the final words of the prophet Malachi, all they had was the Mosaic Law. And there in that time rose the the Pharisee order. The people who were just clinging to the Mosaic law like it was a life vest. They were so protective of it that they kept adding more and more guidelines around the law to keep them at arm's length from ever even accidentally breaking one of the actual laws. And that list of guides, it was known as the Mishnah, which claimed that tradition is a fence around the law. And that was bad, but the worst part is that because of these unwritten expectations and man-made tradition, along with the cultural pressure created by the Pharisees, what people thought of when they thought of purity could have been reduced to as little as, did I wash my hands after I left the market? of course, it was more than that. It was more robust than that. But I just mean to say that it was all external. It was external measurements of obedience to the law and physical cleanliness with no regard to the inner realities of the heart. Jesus hated this. That's why there's this one scene in Mark chapter seven. This group of Pharisees challenged Jesus when the disciples were eating without washing their hands first. And it was a huge deal. They said, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And Jesus responds by pulling the most stinging mic drop quote from their own book, from the book of Isaiah, and he applies it to them. He says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is well past the point of tactfulness with the Pharisees as he points out some things that they had gotten very, very wrong. They thought that doing holy things made you a holy person, and that wasn't true. They thought that avoiding sin was the same thing as following God, and that was completely wrong. They thought that purity was a matter of the hands and not a matter of the heart, so Jesus rebukes them sharply. So now we go back to Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the pure, dot, 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 in heart. He comes right out of the gate, and in one sentence, he just expands the horizon of what people think of when they think of the word purity. Purity. I'm going to teach you about purity, he's saying, but it's not like you've heard it for the last 400 years. Blessed are the pure in heart. Interesting. Okay, Jesus, tell us more the pure in heart. So first, he teaches us the meaning of purity and expands what people think of when they think of purity. But second, he teaches the purpose of purity. Now that he said what purity is, he moves on and says what purity does. What purity does is this. Purity gives you perspective. Purity gives you perspective. He says, for they shall see God. It gives you vision to see God. So now Jesus is making a statement that should make you think of, and it makes me think of, my own identity as both pure and impure. As I read that, I'm thinking, okay, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, I want to see God. Of course I want to see God. But at the same time, I feel really painfully aware of both my purity and my impurity. I'm a really mixed bag. There's this theological term that we call progressive sanctification that we'll walk through. Progressive sanctification is basically the process of becoming who God says you already are. So on one hand, you are, you're made clean and sanctified by the blood of Jesus, and on the other hand, you are not yet completely those things. So progressive sanctification is the process of becoming who God says you already are. It's kinda like how we hear in our world so much, be true to yourself. You hear that all the time, every day. This isn't that. This is be true to your new self, what Paul calls the new creation when he says that the old is gone and the new has come. Be true to your new self. See, you are pure. That is definitive what happened. You are pure, washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and at the same time, you are riddled with impurity, and you know that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And at the same time, Hebrews 10 says that by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you get this really clear idea that we were at one point washed and sanctified and made pure and justified in the name of Jesus. And at the same time, we are still being sanctified, as the author of Hebrews says. So that's progressive sanctification. Learning to live like the new creation that you are. Learning to live like the pure in heart that God already says you are. Being true to your new self. Um, I, I know I look soft, Um, but you should know that I'm actually pretty hard at my core. And I got in one fight when I was in third grade, one little scuffle, and one little fight. My mom got scared, she said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle and Bella. I'm just kidding. I did get in one fight though, one physical fight. In third grade, we were playing um, Butts Up. Can I say that? Can I say that game name? It's a game with a ball and you throw it at the wall. Um, We were playing that and there was this one other little kid and his name was Connor and for some reason he was doing some things that I didn't like with the game. And I don't know what was wrong with me that day. I have no idea. I never did this before and I've never done this since. But he did something I didn't like. And I went over and I pushed him to the ground. And he fell down and he started crying. And I was like, oh. Part of me felt like, you know, pretty good. Like, oh, that's right, Connor. But part of me was like, what did I do? I pushed him to the ground. And he runs and he tells our teacher. And our third grade teacher was one of the most amazing women, one of my favorite teachers ever, sweet older lady named Mrs. Kimero. Mrs. Kimero calls me into her class later and I go in just like trembling, you know, so scared at what she's gonna say. I'm like, she's gonna be so mad, she's gonna be angry, she's gonna be disappointed in me. And I go in with Mrs. Kimero and she sits me down and she just with eyes of solidarity and compassion looks at me and just says, Jake, that's not who you are. What are you doing? That's not who you are. And never forget the feeling of that. I've never forgot the feeling of hurt, this person I loved and respected so much. Not out of anger, not out of disappointment, but out of love and compassion, out of solidarity looking at me and saying, that's not who you are really good teachers and parents and coaches, they know that kids usually live up to what's expected of them, for better or worse. And God is the ultimate parent. So could you just imagine the difference? Some of you, when you mess up, you just see God turn his face toward you in disappointment and with a condescending tone, he just says, figures, it makes sense that you would mess up like that. You are someone who does that, so... What if it wasn't those eyes of disappointment, but eyes of compassion, and he says, son, daughter, that's not who you are. What are you doing? That's not who you are, that's not what you do. See, I believe that purity is really important, and I'm painfully aware of my own pieces of purity mixed in with my life that's riddled with impurity and imperfection but I believe purity is so important and he calls us to be pure in heart. And I believe it's probably more important than we even like to believe, especially in our modern churches that that really like to capitalize on things like just being relevant to our culture and just blending in so much that we don't look weird maybe at times. And I just wonder, I mean, if if maybe the thing that's gonna work better for the church's impact on the world is, is not necessarily more relevant, uh, cool, or flashy church, but a more pure church, a church of people that, that takes serious the call to holiness. But in that, I realize that I'm far less motivated by fear than I am by love. So I'm not as worried that I'm gonna disappoint him or let him down. I just want to be who my Father says I can be. That's progressive sanctification. Becoming who God says we already are and who he knows we are and knows we can be. And he's always calling us to purity as much as he's calling you to anything, to mission or world change or passionate moments of worship. Those are the things we like to celebrate and talk about. He is calling you to deep, undivided devotion in the secret place to flee from sin and to thirst for holiness like it's water. And before we move on, pause for a second. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians 5. Would you just receive this as a blessing, as a prayer for you? When you think about your your desire to be pure in heart and your process of becoming what God says you already are. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself, sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The seventh blessed statement says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So this is when Jesus made up a new word. He can do that because he's Jesus. You can't do that, but he can do that. This is the only place in the entire Bible we see the word peacemaker. And that should make you raise an eyebrow. should make you wonder, okay, why didn't he say peaceful or blessed are people who are pacifists or whatever? And I think it's important because he wasn't just describing someone who is a certain way, peaceful, but he's describing someone who does a certain thing. He makes peace. She makes peace. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says that, It's bigger than what we might think it is. He says that according to Hebrew prophets, our idea of peace comes from the word shalom. You've heard that before from the Hebrew scriptures. Shalom means a lot more than just the absence of war or strife, but it is, and I quote him, he says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It means universal flourishing and wholeness. It's the way things ought to be. Amy Sherman wrote a book called Kingdom Calling, and she expands that and breaks it down and says that shalom, or peace, exists in four fundamental relationships. Peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, and peace with creation, Peace with God, that's what happened when Jesus died to buy us back from sin and death and restore to us a right relationship with God. But then peace with self, which only happens once you find peace with God. You come to grips with your past. You trust God with your future. And all of that, when you have peace with God and peace with yourself, you experience peace with others. You reconcile with people you need to be reconciled with. And peace with creation. One of the first human responsibilities was to take care of God's good world. It's been in our DNA since the very beginning to be stewards of his creation. So to be a peacemaker is to be someone who in every one of these contexts, God, self, others, and creation, to be someone who lives in such a way that strives to see things be how they ought to be. That's a lot more robust than just playing nice with others or getting along. It's not just cheap cordiality. It's not even seeking consensus or agreement necessarily on things. It's a deeper commitment to make the kind of impact that if Jesus were you and lived your life, the kind of impact that he would make on the world and the people around you, to set things more right and more in order than how you found them, right being defined by him. Now That's a tall order and it ultimately only comes from God. Paul reminds us in Philippians that the peace of God, it surpasses understanding. When you have that and you live it out, it actually surpasses understanding. It doesn't even make logical sense. The result of peacemakers, they shall be called children of God. They shall be called children of God. I love the simplicity of that because this is what God's kids act like. God's kids are peacemakers. The eighth and the final blessed statement says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that really covers verses 10 through 12. It it kind of gets expanded uh, in 11 and 12 and explains a bit to that. So those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, again, two things I see Jesus uh, saying, I see him doing right here in this statement. Number one is that Jesus assumes missional living. Jesus assumes missional living. He says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And what he's saying is that you will be and ought to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That gives me pause and that gives me a moment of challenge and conviction, personally. Because I'm looking inward and I'm asking, Jake, would you ever be persecuted because of your faithfulness to Jesus? Have you been? Is that even a possibility in your life? Are you living in such a way that's so different from your culture that is so devoted to the way of Jesus that 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 is even a possibility that your neighbors and the parents on the team and the people at school and your coaches and every, like, would they look and would there even be the possibility, the, the window of opportunity for them to treat you differently because of your faithfulness to Jesus? And Jesus is saying, there ought to be. You ought to be. There ought to be times when there's persecution because of your pursuit of righteousness. And the spectrum of persecution is wide. Let's let's know that and admit that. There's, there's levels of persecution that you and I, because of our time and place in history and in the world, will never understand. But that's not at all to belittle the ways that you may be um, belittled or persecuted or Um, left out or whatever thought different of so many levels and degrees of persecution because of your faithfulness to Jesus Does that happen in your life? Would you just consider that? Number two Jesus asserts himself as the center of the good life So first he assumes missional living and then he asserts himself as the center of the good life This is really easy to miss But all the previous beatitudes could be explained from the Hebrew scriptures, at least at a surface level, but not this one. Because this one, loyalty to Jesus is openly introduced. He says, if you're persecuted, people utter all kinds of evil things and revile you on my account. Notice that phrase, on my account. Every listener right there at that time, they would say, no, 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 no. You mean on God's account, right? We're persecuted on God's account, or at, at least on Moses' account, or on Abraham's account. Like, those are the fathers of our faith. No, Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted on my account. These three sneaky little words that Jesus uses just to, to start the slow drip of revealing his identity to the world. I am the center of all blessedness. I am the center of the truly good life. I am the reason you will be persecuted, because of your faithfulness, not to Moses or to Abraham, yes to God, but that also means yes to me, persecuted on my account. Not only does he say it that way, but Matthew writes it in such a way that he positions Jesus as the central climax of every one of these values. And it makes sense, because we'll see, as we watch the life and the ministry of Jesus unfold, that he is the ultimate and finest expression of each of these standards, not the least of which is this, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake on the account of others. Realize how Jesus embodies and fulfills every value on this list. He is the truly poor in spirit. He is the, the mourning, suffering servant. He is the meek, obedient sheep. He is the righteous one who satisfies our hunger for righteousness, both by imputing his righteousness to us and also by giving us a track to run on toward righteousness. He is the ultimate mercy giver. He is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the one who would suffer and be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. As with every part of following Jesus, this to me just means freedom in following him. This means that we're not making anything up. We're not manufacturing something new. We're not just coming to some cold list of random goals and testing them out and seeing if they work for a better life. What we're doing is we're looking to Jesus as the example of all blessedness and drawing on him as the source of all blessedness. Again, from Romans, from him and through him and to him. Are all things. So it's almost as if you come to the Beatitudes and you leave with the tone of Jesus, not not just saying, All right, here it is. Good luck. Be blessed or don't. That's not it at all. He's saying, This is who I am. You'll see it play out through my teaching, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection. This is who I am. I am the ultimate expression of all blessedness. Come be with me. Watch me. Learn from me. Do it how I do it and become like me. Last week, I encouraged us to let Jesus define our idea of the good life. This week, just know this, Jesus is the center of the good life. Jesus is the center and the source in every way of the truly blessed life. Would you submit to him in a fresh way today? whether you've done that before or this is the millionth time, submit to him as the center of the good life, the truly blessed life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come to your word, to one of the most uh, famous, well-known, significant passages of scripture. Father, I just thank you for it. I thank you for uh, the way that you, again, you just you allow room for us to experience the breadth of life, to experience the highest highs and the lowest lows, to experience things like mourning and things like persecution, and to know that even in those seasons of life, Father, there's blessedness to be experienced. God, you're so faithful to us, and I pray that today we, again, would submit ourselves to you as you are the center of the good life. You are the center and the source of the truly blessed life. It all comes from you, it happens through you, and it is to your glory. So Jesus, be honored in our lives, be honored in our submission to you, and in our obedience to you. Would you make us more like the people you say we already are? Would you continue to sanctify us by your word? Continue to grow us towards the people you know we can be. Jesus, we love you. We give you all the praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.